0: It becomes problematic when it starts to dictate how you live your life.
1: What is up, everybody? And welcome back to the Schooling Struggle Podcast. It is our belief that the only guarantee in life is that we are all going to struggle. And how we choose to embrace our struggles is what empowers us to become the best versions of ourselves. How's it going? My name is Pete coming to you from Vermont, and with me is my friend and co-host, Todd, coming to you from Washington State. What's up, Todd?
2: What's up, Peter? <laughs> I'm working on my what's up, Pete. That's what that's what <laughs> nothing nothing much. We had some flurries today. Check this out. It doesn't snow here very often. And when we get a flurry, I swear, like two flurries, I looked out the window, I was like, ooh, it's snowing. And the plows are out with the lights on, and I was like, come on, really, let's pick it up a notch, so. i focus on the weather sometimes Uh, that was today's weather report
1: yes they don't even (laughs) take the plows out of the lot here unless it's going to be more than three inches
2: (laughs) it's unbelievable oh man i'm so fired up for tonight yep
1: so episode 37 a couple episodes ago we had dr bill slamming on and i'm going to read to you some of the feedback i got from the episode with dr bill Ooh. i didn't want episode 37 with dr bill to end i could listen to that guy all day so, I reached out to Dr. Bill and said, yo, Dr. Bill, any chance you want to come on on a fairly regular basis? And he's like, absolutely. So, with that said, Dr. Bill Slammon, welcome to the show.
0: What's up, Dr. Bill? What's up, Pete? What's up, Todd? Hi. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me back. I'm super psyched to be here. You're, you're our first uh, second timer. Ooh. Nice work. This is going to be like Saturday Night Live where people start counting the times they've hosted the <laughs> Schooling Struggle podcast. Happy to be uh, the first for the second go around. I was a little worried about it being my second, my sophomore effort. Usually, those fail miserably. So.
1: Yeah, the part twos of the albums and the movies are always, yeah, tough to to measure up. So I'm trying to keep my expectations uh, at a reasonable level. (laughs) Good job. Good job. Well, you absolutely crushed episode 37 on stress, and we are super psyched to have you back uh, for real, as as much as you want to come. You just have so much to share. And when we were talking about Dr. Bill before the recording, Todd said, the beauty of having Dr. Bill on the show
2: is, how did you word it, Todd? Well, I just I just said uh, something along the lines of um, it's it's nice to have and, and easy to get into conversation with uh, people who are openly curious about um, not only what we talk about because <laughs> obviously that's a kicker but also sharing what they know or in you know in context of, of what that is I think that it, it's almost as if we've all been friends for, <laughs> for a couple of years and I just met Bill last last was on show so
1: that's awesome so after we got all that feedback um, about dr. bill's last episode and talking to Todd and how comfortable we were and just how how smooth the episode went, I reached out to Dr. Bill and said, hey, we'd love to have you back on. And he said, what do you want to talk about? And I said, what do you want to talk
2: about? So we had a
1: meeting and he came into my office and he shared a bunch of different topics that that we're going to kind of dial in over the next bunch of times we have him on. And one that we chose for this evening is to focus on a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by consciousness, otherwise known as shame. And when I heard, we're going to do an episode on shame, like I don't I don't really know how that applies to me or where I, that could fit into my life. And I thought, oh, this is really you. cool. <laughs> yeah. Shame on me. I'm going to learn a ton <laughs> of stuff about this. So I did a little bit of homework, not very much in preparation for tonight's episode, but I have some stuff I want to throw at Dr. Bill. But in kicking off our conversation about a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by consciousness, I'm curious to know Dr. Bill, where you want to lead off.
0: That's a really good question. Um, so I think probably a good place to start. Well, let me, let me first say a few things about why I thought it was a good topic for for your, for your podcast. And then we'll maybe talk a little bit more about what shame is, or at least my understanding of it. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's almost, I think for most people, it's like universally experienced as an unpleasant experience, right? Nobody likes to experience a sense of shame. But I think it's important for us to be clear about what shame really is and what it isn't. And this kind of goes back to the thing we always talk about, right? Mindset, how we, you know, some of the other ideas we had for, for tonight about um, the stories we tell ourselves and the importance of um, when we're in a shame, when we feel shame, it can feel like a very dark, stuck place. And it's important for us to keep in mind that there are still things we can do to grow from it. And not just let it kind of st- stunt our growth. So, so let me go back to why I thought I thought it was a good idea for the show. As I said already, shame is is a for most. I, I can't imagine anybody experiences shame as pleasant in any way. But shame is typically something that is really unpleasant to feel, and and there's good reason for that. The reason I wanted to bring it up on the show is because I, I don't know if it's. Um, The way things are today, or if it's just the work I do, mostly working with kids and teenagers, um, but even some of the adults I work with, um, it just seems like it has become such a prominent experience for people. And people don't always label it as shame, whatever it is they're experiencing. Just sitting and talking with them, you realize that what they're experiencing is shame. Um, Again, I work in schools like Pete and... We have so many times kids who are re- refuse to do work, or they, you know, they refuse, you know, for in some cases, they refuse to even go to class or come to school. And in so many of these situations, shame is sort of at the heart of what's, you know, preventing them from engaging in, in their lives in a more meaningful way. Um, I think it's, I'm going to cut you off real quick. Yeah, please interrupt. Go. I think it's
1: interesting that you were saying that we may not use the word shame, but there's other. There's other depictors or descriptors that we use. So I just thesaurus it for my own kind of knowledge. And some of the words that come up are humiliation, mortification, chagrin, loss of face, embarrassment, indignity, discomfort. Um, so some of those are kind of, that's more helpful for me in thinking about this conversation about shame and all and how we can experience shame in so many different ways. It's not this one thing. Um, so I thought that was what you just mentioned about that was really helpful for me. So thank you.
0: Yeah, and and I, so so like I said, the I the reason I thought it was good for us to talk about it is because it seems like it's very prominent. It's certainly a very common experience for people who have experienced trauma, um, especially if they've experienced physical or sexual trauma. Um, shame is almost guaranteed to be part of that individual's experience, regardless of age, even even as an older person. Um, so let's talk. Let me let me share at least my sense or my understanding of what shame is, and um, and not necessarily what it isn't, but to to make a little bit of a differentiation, which I think is important. Um, so every every the things I've read the the research I'm familiar with almost always they make a distinction between guilt and shame, and the way it's it's distinguished between. Um, is when they talk about guilt, when we talk about guilt, uh, it's an unpleasant feeling, but it is typically a sense of regret or remorse about something we did. So it's it's about a behavior, it's about an action. And it's typically not so much about our whole self. It's just we did something, we feel really bad about it, and usually by apologizing, by making amends, by repairing it in some way, we're good to go. What, in fact, I what uh, to quote uh, Brene Brown. What she says is, so let me see if I can remember the quote, com- you know, accurately. Um, when I do, you know, w- with guilt, I've made a mistake. With shame, I am a mistake. Hmm. And to me, that when I heard that quote, that was so powerful to me. Because there is an all-encompassing, overwhelming, oppressive experience that I think happens when we feel shame. Because in those moments, we feel like our entire being is worthless. Our entire being is is um, is not is not worthy of redemption. Is not worthy of forgiveness, or you know, however we want to think about it. Um, and it's a sense of ourselves as being more than that we did something wrong is that there is something wrong with us and when i think about that and like i said when i see when i see how pervasive shame has become in our community brene brown says that we have an epidemic of shame going on in in our culture and our communities um and for what it's worth importantly people adolescents and people in their later years of life are more prone to feel shame more intensely. Say that again. Sure. So adolescents, people in their kind of formative years, well, they tend to feel everything more intensely, but because they're in the process of shaping their identity, they're more prone to feeling shame and feeling as if there is something inherently wrong with themselves than middle-aged people. Middle-aged people, not that they don't feel shame, and certainly people who have experienced trauma in their childhood or adolescence are very prone to experiencing shame on a regular basis, uh, regardless of their age. But what the research shows is that it is most experienced among adolescents, and, it, and then the second group that experiences it most intensely are people in the later years of their life, where, where you know, they're... they're, they're perhaps more, you know, have more free time are more available um, and are experienced, you know, they're, they're kind of struggling with did I make as much of my life as I wanted to because they're kind of, you know, looking, you know, the end point isn't as far off as it, as it was previously. So I have some questions, but I want to let Todd chime in and sprinkle
1: some
2: salt on the platter here. (laughs) Is it platter? or Is it the wound? I'm not sure. (laughs) What you got? I, I have so many things, but I'm going to let you go because I, I want to digest what I just heard Bill say. So I'm just curious from what you
1: just shared, and, and that's that's profound for me to to hear this for the first time. I'll just give an anecdote. I think it'll be easier shape my question. So we are not yet into December, and my daughter has already lost not one but two pairs of mittens coming and going from school and from swimming lessons, and we're trying to. <laughs> teach her to be more responsible and not lose these mittens. She came home today having lost a second pair, not one, but both mittens. And I said to her, I think what I'm going to do is take your favorite toys and take pictures of them and sell them on the internet to recoup the money <laughs> that we need to pay back for your mittens. And my wife was not happy with me saying this. She's like, that's not practical. My wife said this in front of my daughter. And I said, it is very practical. All I do is take photos of the of the toys and post them on the internet and people will offer us money for the toys. It's very easy and very practical to do. And of course I felt shameful after that, but did I just feel what? guilty? Cause it was a single action. So my guess is my question is, can shame be just from a single action? Like I had a good day. Everything was great today. And then I had a moment of shameful or guilty behavior and, and I felt bad after that. And then I talked to my daughter and kind of smoothed it over. And now I'm kind of back to where I was or is shame just kind of always there? It's a, it's a, Uh, proprioceptive it's a way that you see yourself constantly almost like ubiquitous with you wherever you go or can shame just be a
0: single act like me today so so it's certainly likely and to my mind it's possible that you experienced a bit of shame but that given the kind of the researchers you know definitions that the bulk of it was probably guilt okay And, and more more probably stimulated by your wife's intervention that like, what are you doing? <laughs> you can't do that. I just um,
1: I just wanted to find a way that she would care enough because she doesn't care. $20 a pair of mittens or whatever it is that we paid, is no big deal for her because mommy and dad would just keep replacing mittens, but we need to figure out a way for her to remember her mittens. So I just had a weak moment that was, I don't
0: know if it was shameful or guilty,
1: but I feel both, I
0: guess. So I, I think the critical difference is when we do something wrong, our whole identity hasn't been defined or destroyed by that action. And that we can repair what we did relatively simply. So by apologizing, by making amends, by doing something to repair, you know, the, you know, not the damage, I guess, for lack of a better word, that we did in our relationship with that person. And and then in fact our apology is sufficient. The other person feels fine, you feel fine. Most people would say that's guilt. Okay. All right. So shame is when we do something or we experience something and what we think and feel is that we are just worthless. We are, we aren't, we aren't worthy of forgiveness. We aren't worthy of the person letting us off the hook or cutting a slack or, or, you know, because we're just a terrible person at our core. And I mean, as I say those words, it's hard, not hard for me to imagine how that feels to walk around like that for many people day in and day out, right? Um, in, in school with kids, we often will see at all ages, right, very young, middle school, high school, we will often see, see them go into what we refer to as a shame spiral. So something will happen, usually happens to them, right? So we, we have a, you know, somebody says something to the student that kind of triggers this sense of shame in them. Uh, they hear someone else talking, not even to them directly, and it triggers a sense of shame in them. And then they literally spiral into some kind of either emotional withdrawal and, you know, a, a kind of meltdown, but in in the in a sense of withdrawing into themselves and becoming just completely unresponsive and uncommunicative to others or they will spiral up into yelling screaming possibly aggressive you know kind of and 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 it it's, it's sometimes easy to miss what's actually happening right because when we see the behavioral reaction You know, usually from the outside, we're like, what the heck is going on? Like, what is up with this kid? And and it's not just kids. Just to be clear, I've had both in my social life as well as my professional life, I've worked with adults that this happens to them almost on a daily basis, where something happens, they have some interaction with somebody. And even though from the outside, we would define it as a completely neutral interaction, there was nothing particularly emotional or accusatory or negative about it. But what the person feels triggers a shame response. It triggers that sense of I am no good. I am worthless. And I can tell you, like, you know, from some past personal experience, when you're in that space, like, it, it's very hard to get out of it. And it feels terrible. It just feels terrible. Are you... um? So when
1: I first started to kind of learn about anxiety and depression, come to learn that many, many more people were dealing with this or facing this with this than I ever expected. Do you see that with shame as well? There's a lot of people carrying around differentiated levels of shame throughout their day to day, maybe very, very high functioning people, but that this is something that many more people are dealing with or coping with than we even recognize.
0: So my sense is yes. My sense is yes. And Part of the reason why I suggested we chat about it tonight is because I'm seeing what I think is more and more people who experience a great deal of shame. And it's it's hard to know what's affecting what in terms of numbers, but it also seems like, and I think it's more our awareness than there's necessarily more trauma, but we are more aware of how many people experience trauma in their lives. And it as it turns out, There's a huge number of people that experience trauma at some point in their lifetime, whether it's during their early childhood, during their adolescence or young adulthood, or even later in their adulthood. And um, in some respects, it doesn't even matter what kind of trauma it is. It could be sexual or physical trauma as a kid. We hear when when we talk to uh, veterans of war and they come back having uh, uh, experienced significant traumas. They often have a degree, especially if they've had to react aggressively or violently to defend themselves in those situations. There is often a tremendous sense of shame that comes with them as they return and try to re-enter into life. That a big part of their emotional functioning, as they return to civilian life, is dealing with and managing the shame and the sense of self-damage and 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 self-loathing that comes along with it.
2: Wow. I got some questions, Bill Slavin. You said, uh, <clears throat> if I heard you correctly earlier, um, in the context of, of the work that you do, either with kids or adults, or it doesn't really matter in the in the context where you see this shame and you and you, um, I think you mentioned you you have sensed like an uptick in the prevalence of maybe of, of your seeing it or we're seeing it holistically as people, <laughs> humans. Like I don't know, but it makes me wonder: Do you, attribute that to something specific or is it, or is it just like you, like you said, it's just an overall more accepting awareness of, you know, the human, the the shared suffering of this thing?
0: I I definitely think it's an increase in awareness. It's an increase in awareness. I think there is, things have shifted in our culture and in society where it's more acceptable to express how you're doing. And what you're struggling with to be you know especially with you know internet and social media i mean there's a degree to which especially among younger people there's a degree to which you know almost anything is fair game you know for social media um i think it's it's i don't know and there, there may be statistics that i'm not aware of um it seems like there is more trauma in our society certainly it seems like people in general are struggling more in in society and it's and, and there is some data that suggests especially among teenagers that there has been um not to put everything on um smart devices but there has been a significant and progressive increase in anxiety and depression among adolescents and young adults since 2007 when the iPhone was first um released and i'm not i I have an iPhone. I love it. All that. Is, <laughs> it's a very useful device. Yeah. But at the same time, we have, we have actual research out of the University of uh, San Francisco Medical School that shows that there's um, been a significant increase in anxiety and depression among that young people. Um, now, that, that doesn't necessarily mean they experience a great deal of shame. However, um, this is another piece I wanted to touch on. The, not surprising, there is a very strong correlation between uh, the experience of shame and, and the experience of anxiety and depression. And some of what I read suggested that shame contributes to the development of anxiety and depression. In my clinical mind, I don't know how I could tease those apart. You know, when you, have a, a, you experience a deep and intense sense of shame, by definition, you feel terrible. You you feel depressed. You feel anxious. You feel alone and isolated. Um, so I'm not sure if one is causing another, or it, mm. you know, to me it's almost like they all just coexist. And maybe what we're doing is just p- putting labels on this whole um, holistic experience that people have, and where we're kind of are, are arbitrarily separating them out. Is yeah. how I, I guess I would think of it.
2: It's it's so funny to listen. To to have the opportunity to listen to you and Peter, like hold this conversation and and, and say things that are so, uh, what's the word, um, profoundly resonant to me. Like you said, imagine what that's like to to like live in that shame forever. And I think to myself, imagine what that's like not to live with that shame forever or every day. And so it's very odd to have the, to be part of this conversation where you you. Clearly I I feel like we're on two different sides. This could be completely different. But for for the conversation we're having and the and the assertion you made, it seems to me like I constantly live with like this imposter and this shame that I that I've never really found the root of. I'm sure it's rooted way back in my, you know, being fed, you know, labels and, you know, drugs and medicine back in my youth, but I never addressed it. But now when I think about who are the people or what are the feelings that are most close to my day to day, I mean you know i brush my teeth with shame <laughs> you know what i mean like as soon as i get up there it is right and then it, the rest of the time is like working around either how to hide it and cover it or how to address it in small ways that makes it feel like i'm i'm making headway towards something that i have no idea what the resolution would even look like and so when i go back in my mind and i think about peter's example and i think kind of to what you're talking about how do you, how do you tease those apart in my mind it's it's a very clear series of events or triggers like you were talking about earlier but Before Peter shared his story, I was thinking back to a situation once where I was actually shamed, (laughs) like somebody shamed the hell out of me. And then because of that, I felt guilty. And now I carry the shame of that guilt. And so those things are very hard to tease apart, but it was because of of an incident that happened it was made public in real time. And I felt, you know, that, that emotion, like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I, like, I feel somebody else is shaming me up purposely, purposely saying, I don't know, these things or trying to expose, you know, some inadequacy I had. Then I then, I assumed that and carried the guilt of, I should have known better. I, I should know more to do this. And then that just that's like a building block of of that shame. So, I, like in my mind, it's very easy to see. This is where it started. Here's the fertile soil. Here's the seed that was
0: planted, and now here's the tree of Todd. Right. So it's weird. And and what as you're saying that, what makes your story makes me think about what I was referring to earlier. The whole idea of shame spiral. Yeah. So somebody intentionally tries to shame you, and your response is to feel guilty. Yeah. That somehow no. you did something wrong, which of course In is what while. that person was trying to <laughs> accomplish. Right? Yeah. So it may have, it may have been a mini shame spiral, but it was yeah. that was kind of a shame spiral, right? Because mm-hmm. this person tried to trigger you, and then somehow you end up feeling. And this is what we do. Like it's not you. I would say it, it's rare for people to never experience shame. In fact, we have a name for people who never experience shame because <laughs> if you have you have to have empathy on some level, right, a capacity for experiencing what other people are experiencing, to even experience shame to begin with. And the people that don't experience shame we refer to as psychopaths Psychopaths, and sociopaths. These are people that only care about themselves and they feel very good about themselves and other people are objects to meet their needs. I mean, there's not reciprocity Mm -hmm. in their relationships. Um, But those are the only people that don't ever experience shame because... They don't. Because right? they can't. Yeah. They don't have the capacity. Where yeah. it's nor let me let me just say this for the record. It's normal to experience some shame at some times. It really becomes problematic. And this is part of why you know Pete and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It it becomes problematic when it starts to dictate how you live your life. It becomes problematic when it prevents you from doing something that you really yeah. would like to do but you are convinced because you're worthless or because of whatever that there's it's not even worth trying. It's just yeah. not going to work. No, it's not even worth trying. Just don't get into it. Um, and so that's, and that's an interesting part prob-
2: then, is is like when you if you see that and this is probably based <laughs> based on what you just said this is probably a lot of what you do in the context of your work but how do you, how if somebody would have told me what you just said in 5th grade like I would've been like I mean had I had the ability to absorb it I would have been like, "Wow, there's a name for that thing," <laughs> and there's actually this is what everybody does, and so I'm not just alone. And it it clearly could have changed the shame path, the, the path of life that you take, right? So, are there are there things that you know teachers or yourself or like what's the way we we begin to raise that awareness in a positive way to where you know you can say this is shameful, everybody feels
0: this. Here's what we can do about it, right? Here's the tools. Right, so so yeah. Let me jump into that because it's definitely, like, kind of like, how do we address some of this? is part of, I was planning to get to that. So, in terms of our working with kids, and, and or even old, you know, it doesn't. The age in some ways doesn't matter. One of the, uh, for lack of a better word, one of the antidotes to shame, is in fact empathy. Us being empathic with other people and validating for them that the truth of what they're experiencing right i mean now we think of like really deep problematic shame as really kind of being part of the narrative we tell ourselves part of the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves like we have convinced ourselves and and it's and we usually come by it honestly it's not that like we're just making stuff up You know, like whether it's your kid in school and teachers are, you know, old school teachers are just doing what they used to do. And basically, even even child rearing. Right. Shame used to be a core part of (laughs) child rearing and teaching. And this is how we got kids to do what we wanted them to do by shaming them. Right. I grew up Catholic. Shame was like the core. It was like what? You know, basically it was was, I lived in a world of shame. So
1: like. Like telling your sad seven-year-old they're going to sell all their toys to pay for their lost mittens, without you are referring to. Hey, before no, we go you, any further, you, you, we, one go. second. We we keep referring to the word empathy, and I just want to make sure that the listeners are all on the same page. So, empathy, as defined by Google, is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another person.
0: And, and I would say the the, the complementary c- concept with empathy is validation right? A lot of people who experience a lot of shame also feel like they're just crazy. Like there's something deeply wrong with them. They're crazy. They experience all this shame and it can be life-changing to have someone in your life that says, you know what? I'm not surprised you feel that way. Like I get it. Look what that person did to you. Look how you were raised. Look what happened to you when you were a kid in school. Look at the trauma you experienced. All those things are... Are crazy-making and they leave you feeling like I mean just like like you said uh, Todd about the person trying to shame you and then you felt guilty the same thing happens in folks who have had trauma they're convinced that they're at fault for their trauma that they did something wrong to not prevent their fathers from sexually abusing them or their mothers from physically abusing or what or whoever right uncle brothers cousins uh, there is there is often a deep sense that they did something wrong in that not, that al- allowed the abuse to happen and like of course we know that they had no choice and that's part of what makes something traumatic is when something happens to you that you have no control over you can't stop that makes it traumatic when we can stop something that's really bad and really stressful it tends not to be embedded in our bodies literally as something that's traumatic and so, I mean, it's it's a it's a very complex kind of set of things that go that, that happen, but that's the key piece with, with shame is that you're you, it's hard for people who feel a lot of shame to think that somebody out there is at fault, because for they the the inclination is to take it all on themselves. The bad things that people do to me, it's because I'm not I'm that bad, like I'm that damaged, I'm that broken. And so by having somebody come along and, be, and have empathy for you, to be say, wow, I get it. You feel terrible. And by the way, importantly, they don't try to cheer you up. So one of the core, this is like, a, 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 I'll use modern day language, as the kids say these days, it's kind of like a psychotherapy hack is like, as a psychotherapist, you need to become good at tolerating other people's suffering. And being okay with not trying to cheer them up because that often right. comes across just as superficial and kind of BSE. I'm working really hard to use clean language here, by the way. I just want to say I less editing for Pete. But, um, <laughs> I, feel like, so, so, I feel like sometimes they're very, like, I got to drive it home with, <laughs> with this bad word. Sorry. <laughs> it's important stuff, emotional expressions.
2: I mean, like holding that space, right? And, and allowing, being empathetic in a way that allows that person to experience that feeling in proximity to somebody else or w- yeah. with the knowledge that somebody else affirms and understands that this is a crappy situation.
0: Yeah. And part of what is healing for folks with the experience a great deal of shame is also in the same context, developing truly connected, authentic relationships with them. Because through the relationship, it's hard for the story they tell themselves to, to keep standing. Right, it's especially if you can be in a relationship like again. I work in schools, so I think often about students and teachers. Um, we know in the trauma literature that a single teacher can be life-changing for a kid who has had trauma, and and part of we, the reason we think that is is because if that child can develop a relationship, a, a healthy, trusting, authentic relationship with the teacher, if they can look up to that teacher and admire that teacher. And then they have the experience of that teacher caring, authentically caring about them. It's really hard. I'm going to swear now. It's really hard to feel like a piece of sh- if this really cool person cares about you. And that can be at the core of empathy is just feeling like you're crap. And it's re- and like you, you can't just pat a kid on the back and say, you're, you're OK. You're fine. You're a good kid. I like you. Like, it deep. has to be real. You have yeah. to live it. Because otherwise, because they, they see BS, like they right. I mean, kids and even adults, like they see through the BS when it's not real. And that's really so that the empathy, um, validating their experience, uh, you don't even have to fully get into their shoes. If you can just see their suffering and you can acknowledge for them, I get it, you are hurting. And I bet there's a, even if you don't know why, I bet there's a really good reason for it. That can, that, that's powerful. And of course, I mean, folks who are deep into it. They need a lot of that, and over and over again, it's a big part mm-hmm. of it. Because those voices that tell them they're no good are so powerful. I mean, we all know that, right? We all have we all have them on some level. There's at one point in our lives, there was those voices that were like, "You're no good. You're not fast. You're not strong. You're not whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're not smart." It's like it, the voice it, of
2: truth is like the the ultimate, right? <laughs> like, like, oh, that has to be like that's. Uh, what's the word, you know, it's like biblical in nature, like this is, <laughs> this is the blueprint and now everything else is compli- conflicting against that. Yeah. Interesting. I think what's also
0: powerful is for ki- for people. Um, one of the things that Bernie, and I have to say as a quick aside, I'm shocked that I'm quoting Brene Brown, because I think, even though I think she's brilliant and so she's done so much good stuff, um, there's, there are times I'm also like a uh, Bernie Brown, um, but uh, one of the things that, that she says is that um, shame thrives in uh, isolation and in judgment. And I think there was a third. In privacy, maybe that's what it was. In private, which is essentially the same as isolation, and in judgment. And that's judgment, both internal judgment, right, because we're usually our worst critics, as well as a sense that others are judging me, whether or not they are, and that what what Where where shame cannot f- exist is in relationship and in connection with other people. And yeah,
1: in researching—I cut you off, go ahead.
0: No, no, please, go, Pete.
1: In, prep, in preparation for tonight's show and kind of looking into this, uh, I came across this psychotherapist by the name of Joseph Burgo, and I guess he's been in psychotherapy for over 35 years. Does a lot of marriage and family therapy, clinical—he's uh, a clinical psychologist. And um, he wrote a, a really well-known book, I guess, called Shame. Can't be that well-known because I haven't heard of it. But um, kind of like what you just said, he, he puts kind of the four, I don't want to say most popular, the four m- more general types of shame um, under these kind of umbrellas. And he has unrequited love, which is what you just said. It's a non-reciprocated feeling of joy and attachment. So I feel connected to this person, but. I don't feel that reciprocation from them. Second one is exclusion, that feeling of being left out. Um, Then there's unwanted exposure is when you draw attention to yourself in a way that you don't want, uh, like public embarrassment is is an example of that. And then disappointed expectation where you knowingly or not set a goal for yourself and fell well short of attaining that goal. Um, so when you were just bringing up what Brene Brown said, I was thinking about what this guy, Joseph Burgo, said. And um, I thought that those are pretty relatable for me. Unrequited love, exclusion, unwanted exposure, and disappointed expectation.
0: And the only thing I would say is that I think some people can experience those things without it becoming kind of a, you know, blossoming into a huge shame experience. Right. And But others who are even like have the courage to put themselves out there a little bit, if something like any of those four happen, it's like they just drop off the cliff. You know, I mean, just go ahead. Do you think that that, do you think that that resiliency is, is
2: because there's a network of genuine, um, relationships where they know that there's that, like, I know I can go back here and be in the safe zone, but if I go out here and I share a little bit of myself and it completely falls apart, then eh, that's not that big of a deal. Dr. Bill knows way more about this than
1: I would, but I would say anecdotally of 17 years of teaching, yes, like uh, kids from stable situations where they know they can go back to that comfort zone seem to have a higher level
0: of resilience of those that don't. What would you think, Bill? 100%, and I couldn't have articulated it better, Todd. I mean, that is exactly what it is, and that's what we've been talking about in terms of relationship being healing and an antidote to— shame, and that kind yeah. of emotional experience. Um, without going deeply into it, there's there's your whole theory, there's a whole attachment theory, right? That we think about healthy attachment as an infant leads to a healthy human being later mm-hmm. in life. And part of what happens is when you have the trusted caregiver, uh, the, the, the healthy, healthily attached child, uh, has the mom or dad or, or caregiver as a home base and then they can explore, go out in the world and explore and then they come back to home base, right? The safe the safe home base. Um, and they can go out in the world and, and bruise a knee or have something bad happen uh, that was painful or scary but they don't become traumatized because they have the connection. Um, yeah, I mean, my, um, my bias and, and really the focus of my career work Wherever I've been is based on the idea that relationships not only foster healthy human beings, but they also heal for people who have not had the healthiest of lives. You know, bad experiences or whatever earlier on. So yeah, I think you're right on.
2: That's interesting. So then,
0: so then, if you, (laughs) so then, I mean, it it
2: might be very stripped down, simplistic outlook, but um, if you're able to cultivate, find, and cultivate meaningful relationships. And and you see that, or that could be claimed as um, you know an alleviating property of getting of, of separating yourself from shame or guilt or whatever all the cocktail of feelings come with that. What then is the best way to do that, right? So if you've never had friends and you've always had this shame monster on your shoulder tell you, "Ah, oh, that guy doesn't want to be your friend," you're, you know you're, you're out of your mind. Where does one go to begin to create these, especially like later in life? Because you know if you're in school, you have interactions all day long. It could go any different direction, right? All these different cliques, all these different teachers, blah blah blah. You get into the real life, you know, if you're already not completely closed in, where do you go to find those healthy relationships and create them and and ensure that you're, you know, working in the direction of lifting yourself out of that instead right. of just, I guess that's a therapy session, right?
1: Well, the, the easy answer to that is
0: dating apps, right? Don't, yeah. do, oh, there don't, you go.
1: Dating apps killing oh. it right now.
2: Bingo.
0: I don't know. My, my, my son's married now, but my kids were just home for Thanksgiving and just the fact it blows kind of, it's hard for me to relate that the dating apps is just a mainstream part of life. Now. Yeah. Um, so this sounds probably a bit cliche, but as you, the way you were describing that part of me would be inclined to say to that person, let's help you find a good therapist. And not that I think therapy is not the answer for everything or everyone. However, for some people, if you're really socially isolated, if you find the right therapist, they can help you work through and progressively prepare to get yourself connected socially, whether Not it's through cool. dating apps or joining, you know, some kind of social organization, whether it's an athletic club or group, uh, CrossFit, CrossFit uh, <laughs> chess, you know, like or fencing, you, you name it, like just something where you're going to be yeah. out with people, um, you know, the other place obviously which is doesn't always work out but if you're if you're healthy enough to be working then ideally you have colleagues and at least that kind of level of socialization that's happening where you get to you know have at least work friends kind of thing that can be helpful yeah. and validating um, one other thing I wanted to talk about or mention so so we know uh, I, I mean I've been talking about the benefits of relationships with others. but I wanted to say something about what people can do for themselves. And to be honest, in my personal and professional experience, this is kind of the, this is advanced practice. So it's not easy to do, but it may also be incredibly important to do. Um, I, uh, I was connected to this uh, Tibetan monk years ago, some years ago and uh, he was constantly saying, that we, the words he used were, we needed to be sympathetic and compassionate with ourselves. And, you know, when I've had times when I've felt low and not very good about myself, I try to remember, you know what, if you met a friend right now that was feeling like you were feeling, you would be compassionate, you would be empathic, you would try to uh, you know, just be present with them just, and you wouldn't be judging them. You would just be, so why are you judging yourself so harshly? Right. We're really good at judging ourselves like crazy. So part of helping us climb out from that darkness that can, the shame can really bring home for us is slowly, slowly developing a capacity to remind ourselves that, um, You know, at first it feels forced to be, and it's almost like, it's like cliche, like, I am okay. I am good enough. I am, you know, it's like Stuart Smalley from Saturday Night Live. I don't know if you guys. uh, I do. I do. uh, Al Franken, uh, you know, know, I am good enough. I am, you know, whatever. And Don got it.
1: I am good enough. I am smart enough. And doggone it,
0: people like me. People like me, right. I mean, that's obviously, it's it's very silly and and superficial, but there's a degree to which self-talk and trying to change the script matters. it really matters because ultimately we it's really hard to not be in your head, right? I mean unfortunately that's why people start you know doing drugs and drinking alcohol and other escapist kinds of activities to try to prevent themselves from experiencing these hard and heavy feelings. Um, one other thought before I before we, we have to finish and I forget it, 20 years ago I was going through a hard time and I was listening to Tik not Han. And he was talking about when we have really intense feelings, we need to think of them like hard candy, and you know, and and th- th- just allow ourselves to experience the feeling and sit with it, and don't do anything like a piece of hard candy in our mouth. Our mouth will do all the work. We don't have to do. We don't have to move it around, right? The saliva will dissolve it slowly, and that was his metaphor that if we allow ourselves to sit with hard feelings, they will decrease naturally. Just by allowing ourselves to to sit with them. Unfortunately, most of us in the United States have grown up in a culture where we run as fast and far away from our feelings as possible. As quick like get get me out of here. I'm out of dodge. Yeah, get me out of dodge because it's too it's too intense. We have very few opportunities to learn how to sit with heavy, you know, deep feelings. And that's a skill that is life-saving, literally life-saving. Yeah.
2: Have you ever read uh, The Untethered Soul? I think it's called. I haven't. Oh, you should check that out. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about just that, like that allowing. And and every bit that you don't allow just becomes like a heavy tax somewhere else. And like if you never let it flow through, it's going to get stuck somewhere else. And there's like, yeah, you should check it out.
0: I will. I will. Yeah. Yeah. It's impressive how reluctant we are to just allow ourselves to sit with oh, yeah. our mind and with our feelings. Um, uh, well, there's
2: a shame behind sitting there, right? With your eyes closed. <laughs> like, right, right. Who's you, you know,
0: You're a piece of crap. Why are you just sitting here? You're not yeah. doing anything. I remember right?
2: when I started meditating, like I would be meditating in the backyard, just sitting by myself, you know, on the bench and thinking to myself, you know, I wonder if my wife and kids are going to come home. And then I would hear the gate open and I would immediately just feel this wave of, sh- it was shame, like, oh God, they're going to see me over here. Like, look at inside my own head. And they're going to wonder what the hell's wrong with that guy. And then someday it just faded.
0: I was just like, "Oh, who cares?" So uh, you just reminded me of something else I was hoping to mention, and that is, you know, um, different people experience shame, or or shame is created for them in different ways. The research, you know, unfortunately, has been very gender binary, right? So it's been mostly with women or with men, and there hasn't been as much look at, you know, people. along the spectrum of gender identities. Um, but part of the idea for women has been is that women are expected in our society to do it all, and which is which is actually impossible. And so they end up experiencing shame because the expectation is to do it all, and when they feel like they're not doing it all successfully, they, they feel badly about themselves, right? Um, and for men, shame comes, you know, this again is research, it's not individual experience. Shame often comes in the form of um, afraid of fear of showing weakness or that they experience a sense of weakness inside them. And there's like a terror that comes along with with anyone finding out, you know, that you maybe aren't as, as brave in your mind or as, you know, as... Uh, Um, uh, willing to take risks or, I mean, I'm not coming up with good ideas, but it's that kind of thing. It's like worried uh, to be seen for who we really are. Um,
2: Or to show emotion, right? Like that's a a big one too.
0: So as enlightened as we would like like to think we are in in 2022, um, there's still a great deal of fear around showing signs of vulnerability yeah. You know the f- the fears that people are just you know are, are going to think terribly of us. So, like you said, yeah. like just showing our feelings is like a big deal. Yeah. Still,
2: that scares the hell out of me. Like even like I've t- I've talked about this before, but and I'm getting better at it. But it's it was I remember at the beginning. It was, <laughs> it was like, what are you doing? We don't go into the firefight. That's crazy. And then uh, like I remember telling my son a couple of times. I had this conversation with my son one time where. I set him up to fail when he when I left on vacation and I, I like I was like don't play with the Xbox like don't even go in my room and I came back in and I had put some tape or some shit on it and and it was broken and I was like how terrible is that to set him up to fail and then like the whole time he was he knew that I knew right or he didn't know but he was walking on eggshells and finally I had this conversation with him I was like look I totally set you up to fail and that's complete garbage right on my side so you know let's just have a conversation about it and just to, just like watching myself Go through like this. It was like I was like an emotional chameleon. It was the craziest sense of like hot flashes and then, you know, raw emotion. And then I can't talk for a minute. And then him like responding because he'd never seen me do this before. And then at the end, he was like, Why didn't we do that all the time? And I was like, Because that's scary as hell. And now I'm, and even when I'm leaving his room, I'm thinking to myself, he's probably going to think that was like the weirdest. And he'll never do anything like that with his kids. Right. But, that was like a, a point in our relationship where he was like, we can just talk about whatever you don't, you don't ever have to feel weird about having a conversation with me. And I thought, well, if everybody just goes close to that all the time, like if you're always bumping against that fringe of discomfort, that that's where I've, I've found that that's where I learned the most, but it's so hard to keep yourself accountable and keep yourself going towards that when you're just like, ah, it's easier just to yell at them and then go to bed and we'll just wake up and act like everything's fine in the morning. Right? It's easy to do the easy thing. Yeah, I right say that to my students quite often. Yeah. yeah.
0: Anyways, yeah. I, I, I could talk about this. <laughs> Todd, that sounds incredibly powerful. What you did.
2: It with was him. it was unbelievable, and yeah. now I, I find myself all the time thinking, just like, oh, I should I should talk to Ian about this thing because now it it went from the connection that I have with him was the, like the less, and it's interesting because there's a whole bunch of shame, like I don't want you to be like me, right? Like like you don't need to be like me. If you've done better than I'm doing, then I've done my job as a parent and I don't have to carry this, you know, all this load. And now it's like, of, I wouldn't say it's preferred, but of, um, all of my sons, I have a way different conversation and a way different demeanor with how I can just be raw with him and he just gets it. And the other ones would be like, uh, I don't know what to say (laughs) because of that one event. Right. I mean, and it carried Mm -hmm. it so far. So, yeah, it, you're right. It, it definitely counts to have meaningful conversations and meaningful relationships, but you have, you have to assume the work and the toil to go through making that happen. And that's where it's, yeah. so yeah, that's cool. Nice work. That's, that's good stuff. Man, I'm just, I'm just grateful
1: to be sitting here talking and listening to the two of you. This is really good stuff. I, I just think whether it's guilt or shame or anything in between, this is something that is, is prevalent in all of our lives. I guess, unless you're a, a psychopath, um, this is applicable to you in some way. And I, I appreciate Dr. Bill bringing some tactical stuff that we can do in our lives and places to start with a lot of this stuff. And she uh, just got me thinking in ways that I normally wouldn't, which is the entire premise behind launching this podcast and having these conversations. So yeah, thank you both. Cool. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Really glad to be here. Thank you again for inviting me. Well,
1: let's do this off. They <laughs> <laughs> get those sponsorships, we can pay Dr. Bill.
2: Oh, uh, here we go.
1: No need. Happy to do this. <laughs> so, our, to our family of listeners out there, keep in mind struggled at gmail.com is a place to leave feedback, ideas, recommendations, and anything else that you think would enhance your listening experience. We appreciate your ears. We thank you so very much for your time. We are incredibly grateful for your attention. With that said, on behalf of Dr. Bill, Todd, and myself, we are the School Struggle Podcast. We are out. Come on,
2: Todd. See ya.